Nehemiah is the story of God keeping his promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through his people for their flourishing both spiritually through ordering their lives around his word and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, and the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people so that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city. Kids ages uh, three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if you want to take out a Bible and turn in it to the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter two this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one. Uh, there, there, the text is in your order of worship in your bulletin. And if you don't own a Bible, there are a few on the back table. Man, that is a gaggle of children going out right now. Well done, Holy Cross, well done. All right. There there are Bibles in the back. Uh, If you don't own one, we'd love to give that to you. Let me catch us up here with where we're at in Nehemiah. Every religion, uh, and not just religions, every philosophy, every worldview has some kind of sense that the world isn't right. Something isn't right, right? It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Just read the news this week. Both far and near of deaths of people via uh, shootings. You go, what is wrong? What is going on with the world, right? Some of, the, some, uh, some of these religions, philosophies, worldviews, they'll say that the problem is moral, right? The problem is people are bad and they need to be good. Others will say it's, it's, um, you know, it's economic, there's a fundamental disparity between the haves and the have-nots. Some say it's power-based, right? Some have power. They use to coerce others. And that's the problem. We need to get rid of that kind of thing. The Bible declares that these are simply symptoms of the problem. That the problem is, in fact, that we are independent of God. And that all of these other things, the morality and the, and the, uh, the, the economic disparities and, the, and the, the abuses of power, they are simply symptoms of that independence. That we are alienated from God, broken at our core, and when we broke, the world broke. And if that is the case, in other words, if, if the problem is holistic, if it involves all of us and all of the world, then then we can expect the solution to be the same. And that is, in fact, what we find. God God comes to us in Jesus. He he comes to us to reconcile us to himself, not to make a way for us, but to be our way. But not just to do that, but also to set the world to rights. This book that we're reading uh, and we're ordering our lives around for the next 11 weeks, though, was written some 400 years before Jesus ever came. And it illustrates for us how this kind of renewal can happen in a community, in a community just like ours, just like Stanton. And that's why we're looking at it. 
Because Christians, as Christians, we do believe that Jesus did come to right the world and that by, his, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit working through or applying his work, that, that he is actually doing that and doing so through broken, flawed people like us, like the church. This morning we come to the place where a particular program for renewal is set out, a program that can be applied to our own situations and a program that has, through Jesus, become the basis uh, for any change we long to see. So if you have your place in Nehemiah, we're in chapter 2. If you stand, that's our habit here. In honor of God's word, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 20. This is God's word to us. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one of what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate of the king's pool. There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who would do the work. But then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And then I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? But then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, many of us are coming into this place just tanked. We are out of juice. We're out of gas. We, we are clinging to you by our fingernails, but more importantly, desperately hoping that you are clinging to us. Others of us uh, perhaps are, are feeling strong. Uh, we are full of faith. Um, some of us are grieving because of the tragedy in our city in this past week. Two kids whose lives were senselessly lost. We need the God of heaven to come and to meet with us, to speak to us, to speak peace to our hearts. You're going to have to do this, Lord. My words are weak and useless. And so, Holy Spirit, would you be moving in us and through us right now? Would you soften our hearts and open our eyes and our ears? Give us grace to hear from you this morning and faith to believe Jesus, let all that you've done come out and let anything that is not of you fall away quickly. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. We're going to dive in this morning because there's a ton to talk about. There's an outline in your bulletin, uh, which after I sent it to Ann Marin, her words to me were, wow, you have a really strong commitment to alliteration. Um, There are a lot of eyes, but I think that's going to help us. So there's tons to talk about. We're going to look at this this passage and the principles of it in two two ways, okay? We're going to look at principles, and then we're going to look at patterns. 
principles and patterns. If that outline's helpful, grab it. If not, leave it. Okay? So here, here's the thing. There are four what I, would, what I would consider to be principles for change in our community that I want to cover this morning. And these are the principles that we see Nehemiah embody and put into practice. But they are also principles that are difficult for us, things we don't want to do. We'd rather do something else. They're difficult for various reasons, and we're going to deal with those. And the first principle is that of immersion. And by immersion, I don't mean in water, okay? I, I just mean immersion. So look at verse 11. Nehemiah says, So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Now, let's, let's remember how we got to this passage, right? Uh, so most of you will probably remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, right? He's a high-ranking official. He's, he's living large in the palace. He's, he's, um, he's got actual swank and not the, the, the swanky place that we stayed in as, as guys that was called the swank, and it was not. But that was the men's retreat. Anyway, it, it was actual good living. And in the midst of his life there, he came into contact with some Jews who, who came to him and said that, uh, that God's people were in trouble and in shame. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. But he also told them that God's city, Jerusalem, was the walls were broken out, the gates were trashed. And so this guy who's got the life, who's never seen this city, probably doesn't know any of the people who are living there. He's so upset, he weeps, he prays, and he fasts for four months. And then he lays it all on the line to ask the king to send him, along with tons of resources, to rebuild the government, the economy, and the spiritual vitality of this city. Okay, That's where we're at. And we've said this over and over uh, over the last few weeks, that clearly Nehemiah is a gifted administrator. He has lots of resources. He even has political power coming from the king. But look at what he does with all of that. He comes to Jerusalem and he just hangs out. He comes in and he hangs out for three days. Now, we knew that this was going to happen, but this is still important. Because remember, one of the things last week that Nehemiah told the king, hey, I need resources for, is uh, a house, right? He needed, he needed to build a house, Uh, for himself. In other words, he wasn't planning on commuting. He was planning on moving in. So instead of coming in pomp and announcing that finally, hope had arrived, finally, I've got all the money, I've got all the stuff, and i got the plan, we are here, we're here to fix things. He simply came to Jerusalem, he moved in, and he waited this is really huge for us because uh, Nehemiah isn't coming in as an advisor. He's not coming in as a consultant. Nehemiah intends to come in as a community member. He intends to, to, to move in. The principle is this. If you want to see change in an area, if God has given you a heart for a people group, a neighborhood, a school, a city, you actually need to become part of it. You actually need to become part of it. Now, before we get too far, though, let's be honest about what this means. For Nehemiah, it meant danger. It meant a lot of danger, right? Because he's leaving the king's uh, palace where there's guards and everything's fine, and he's going to an urban desert. We, we t- talked about this uh, weeks ago, that when the walls are broken down and the gates are destroyed, you have, you have easy access for any roving band of, I don't know, 
brigands, you know, foul people who want to come in and steal stuff. And they do, and they did. And here's this guy who suddenly has all these resources. Money, stuff. You think nobody saw him traipsing across the desert to get to Jerusalem with all that stuff? But not just that kind of danger. Scholars will tell you that one of the reasons that he doesn't announce his arrival with pomp is because of what we see at the end of this passage. Because at the end of this passage, we're introduced to three people, right? Sanballat, that's a great name. I know some of you are writing that one down for your baby name. Uh, Tobiah and, and, and uh, Gershom. Like we, We're introduced to these guys. Um, and and what, is, what, what we need to understand is that these folks are... Um, They have political power in the region. And this is threatening their political power. And so this guy, Nehemiah, is suddenly in danger. He is in danger from all around him. And so the same would occur with us. Immersion means entering into the problem yourself. Immersion means becoming part of the community, like entering into that problem yourself, becoming vested in it because you will be affected by it. Does that make sense? But we don't want that, do we? I mean, come on. Let's be honest. We don't want that. Most of us in this room, if we want to affect change, we want to think we can do it by dropping in, commuting, lending our expertise from the safety of our own situation, right? If we were Nehemiah, what we would have done is we would have come into town, we would have found the best hotel available because the king's paying for it, and then, and then we would have stayed um, just long enough to let everyone know who we were how we know how to make things better, brought our resources to bear, and then found our way back to the palace the soonest possible way we could. But the first step in change in a community is that we have to become part of the community. So the first principle is immersion. The second principle we see in this passage is investigation. Look down at 12 to 16. Uh, Again, Nehemiah doesn't come in, announce his presence. He doesn't even uh, do what he's about to do during the daylight when everyone can see him. He tours the city, and that's what, that's what we're talking about here. I'd love to have a little map that could show you all of these places, but it talks about the Valley Gate, the Dragon Spring, and the Dung Gate. Who named that one? The Dung Gate. It makes you wonder what was going on at that gate, right? It's like, that's the outflow. That's where everything flows out. Um, you know, but he's, he's touring the city by night. He's, he's walking around the walls, He's heard of the problems, but he's just heard of them. He needs to understand them. He needs to see them for himself. So he goes out at night and inspects the wall. He looks at the damage. He sees how deep the problem goes. Nehemiah needed to to get firsthand knowledge of the problem so that he wasn't trying to uh, see assumed problems fixed, but actually to know what what is going on here. What what are the the issues that that are taking place? And this is important because of the danger that all of us face. The same danger that we face when we hear a statistic, hear a news story, even catch a glimpse of a problem. And we believe that when we do all that, when we hear the statistic, when we, uh, when we maybe see something out of the corner of our eye, when we read a news story or listen to NPR, that we suddenly f- fully and finally understand the issue, Right? You know, we see poverty. We think poverty is a problem of resources. We just need to give more resources. Or responsibility. Well, if they just had a little more money, or if they just 
pick themselves up and make things right. We see addiction, we think the problem is willpower. We see broken families, and we think the problem is simply irresponsibility, right? See, here's the thing that we don't want to really wrestle with. The Bible is very clear that you and I are finite creatures. And a finite creature has a finite perspective. We see things, we see things from within our own skin. We can't really get out of our own experience to see something else. And so we, we, are, we have finite understandings that are born out of the sum of our knowledge, our experience, and our wisdom. But we hate being finite. We hate it. Instead, we want to pretend that we aren't. <laughs> because being finite reminds us that we aren't independent creatures. And so when we approach a problem, what we intuitively do, and all of us do it, every one of us, We intuitively reduce the complexity of that problem so that we can wrap our minds around it. It suddenly becomes smaller and like, oh, well, that's that's a simple fix. You just need to work harder. Just need to throw a little money to it. So you you can't be part of seeing a problem fixed if you don't understand the problem. What we see Nehemiah doing is he's taking a path of humility. Here is a gifted, wealthy powerful man who comes to a city and he learns. He walks around the walls with others. He wants to see how things are. What's the state of the community? How is the wall broken? What would actually need to be done to see this change? He finds himself saying, I may not understand how things are. I I may not understand the scope of the issue, so I need to learn. Now here's how this principle plays out. Once we've actually moved in, once we've actually immersed ourselves in a community, then we need to learn from the inside what the problem is. We need to ask questions. We need to assume from the get-go we don't get it. We don't understand what's going on. We need help. We need to be curious to clarify, and they keep clarifying until you can explain what, what is going on in all of its terrible complexity. And that would be true whether the problem that you are entering into, you are a subject matter expert on, or you're a novice. For example, if you want to minister to teen moms, but you don't understand the life situation of these girls, I don't care if you are the best parent ever or the most successful person ever, you won't be able to help. You first have to learn. You have to investigate. So immersion, investigation, those are our first two. Here's our third one, identification. Look at verse 17. After Nehemiah moves in and does his investigative work, he gathers the community together. Now, in verse 16, he mentions that, that he mentions both those who are in charge and those that aren't, right? Did you see that? He talks about, uh, he talks about the officials the priests, the nobles, but then he also talks about the Jews and the rest, right? He talks about both. This is who he is gathering in verse 17. Now, here's why that's important for us to point out. It would be silly to just gather the regular Joes, right? Because grassroots efforts without any institutional control and trying to see change that way is just silly. It would be just as silly to gather the leaders, to gather the, the key holders, but to have no grassroots efforts, you have to, he gathers them all, and look what he says in verse 17. He says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in. Do you notice that? Nehemiah shows up, he moves in, he investigates, and now he declares, 
that the issues of the community are his issues. And this is like a logical outgrowth of immersion, right? I mean, if you're going to move in, then obviously, well, maybe it's not. It's a logical outgrowth, or it can be, because you see, you can move into a community and still be aloof from it. You can have a mailing address in a city and still not think yourself a part of it. You can be doing life around the broken, but not with the broken, forgetting that you are no different, right? And that is the issue with identification, The identification, the the concept of identification is founded on the notion that every person, every person, no matter their history, is a broken person. Perhaps you've heard the expression, um, there but by the grace of God go I. You've heard that? That actually came from uh, an an English Puritan by the name of, of John Bradford. John Bradford had grown up in the church. He had gone to a church his whole life, but he did not become a Christian until he was 39 years old, right? Maybe that's shocking to some of you. How can you be going to church his whole life and not be a Christian? It's actually very easy, very easy. Because you see, he he was living for almost four decades thinking that what made him okay with God was the fact that he was pretty good, he did all the right things, and he went to church every week, right? He was serving, he was giving, he was doing what he was supposed to do. But at 39, he saw that his goodness wasn't enough, that even his desire to be good apart from God was simply a symptom of his sin. And he finally saw himself as broken and in need of a Savior. And the story goes that as John Bradford was walking with a group of friends, one of whom ended up writing a biography about him, he saw a a line of men heading off to be executed, criminals heading off to be executed, and he looked and he said, there but by the grace of God goes John Bradford. He understood he's no different. He wasn't less broken. He is the same kind of person. He identified with those whose choices were very different than his, but born out of the same need for a Savior. The reality is that most of us in this room struggle with that kind of idea because we want to think that we are, we are different, right? We want to believe that we're not in the same position as those we want to. To help. After all, we made better choices. We worked harder. We're cleaner. I mean, we would never say that, right? But that's what we mean. Reality is, though, if this is where you find yourself, can I tell you, you are simply either better at hiding your sin or yours is just far more culturally acceptable. Before God, though, Sorry, it's no different. It's no different. We have to actually identify with our community to be part of it. We have to own the brokenness of our community. The brokenness in our city is not their problem, it's ours. Can I tell you that so long as you think that you are distant from the problem, so, so long as you think that you are distant from the problem, you will always view yourself as the solution. Now, again, you'd never say that. you say, no, 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 I, I, I don't br- view myself as the solution. I view my, what I bring to the table, the skills I have or the, the knowledge that I have. It's the knowledge, maybe. No, no, no. You're viewing yourself as the solution. Condescending to help those poor people over here. 
But when you see yourself as part of the problem, then you can actually offer a Savior who is the solution. And that brings us to the last principle, invitation. Look down at verse 18. Nehemiah gathers all of these people, and then he says to them, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. Okay? There are two aspects to this principle that I want to get at, the, the, the principle of invitation. The first is that Nehemiah invites the people into God's story of redemption. Do you see that? Because that's what's going on here. He, Nehemiah is declaring to them the story of how God has been working. And I can imagine him starting not with his conversation with the king, let me tell you how this worked, but with what happened when the people told him that the walls were broken and the, and the gates had been burned and, and his, his, the kind of recalling for them his prayer to God of the promises of God to fix the world that we broke and leading all the way up to the way that God was at work in the heart of this king. The way that... God was working so that an ancient Near Eastern dictator, uh, tyrant, (laughs) would actually reverse a previous decision that he made, just unheard of, and not just allow the work to happen, but to fund it, to actually give all of his resources to seeing it happen. Nehemiah is saying to them, look, God is at work. God is gracious even though we have betrayed him. He'd be seeking our flourishing. So he invites them into the story of redemption. And then, second, he invites them to be part of it. This is big. A community must own its own change. Could Nehemiah have brought enough workers to complete the task? Yeah. You think a few slaves are more expensive than the timber that he had cut, milled, And brought with him? Nah. King of Persia had plenty of workers. But Nehemiah didn't bring workers with him. He could have brought them, but it probably wouldn't have worked. Because you see, you and I, as God's image, were made to work. People who have, through their own creativity, energy, and skill, affected change in their community will be more likely to carry it forward. It affirms their dignity, that they are capable people. Obviously, they're capable. And that they understand the problems better than any outside contractor. Okay? Here's why this is hard for us, though. Th- this whole thing, this invitation thing is hard for us because it becomes awfully difficult to take credit for something. When you are acknowledging God's work as being primary and the community as being necessary. Isn't it? I mean, you see that, right? When we do that, you you and I, we're marginalized, gloriously marginalized, which of course doesn't matter, right? Since since change in the community is what matters, that's what we're looking for. I don't really care if our name's attached to it, our church's name, our whatever, our group's name, right? See, this is hard for us because we want the name, we want the acknowledgement, we want the glory. But any actual renewal of our city, even any renewal in us, is ultimately bound up not in our ingenuity, not in our ability, but but bound up in the grace of God. Nehemiah shows the principles for renewal in our community because he embodies them, principles of immersion, of investigation, of identification, and then invitation. So that's our principles. Now let's look at our patterns. And I want to hit two more words starting with I because why not, okay? 
Because you see, we could call this passage an interesting idea. You could even call it a viable option if we just stopped here and went, oh, isn't that neat? There's a biblical kind of model for this. That might work in some circumstances. But, but we wouldn't see it determinative for renewal, except that this pattern that we see isn't just seen here. You see, Nehemiah's work was great and did good things, but the community needed more. We're going to come to the end of Nehemiah and see the, the very last thing we see is that here, here we have a community that seems to consistently keep needing renewal. Nothing's working. Like, it's not, it's not ever working enough. There's something missing. They needed something more. They needed a better Nehemiah. And that's what they got. We have seen a better Nehemiah come. And when this better Nehemiah came to renew us and the world, the same pattern followed because this program that we see here is the same program that Jesus takes up later for our redemption. You don't believe me? Okay, here it is. When God came to rescue us, as uh, Jason read for us this morning, he didn't just commute from heaven, right? He didn't take the L to come in and get into town and then kind of work a little bit and then head off back home at the end of the day. God came to rescue us by becoming incarnate in Jesus. Literally, John chapter, chapter 1 says, as Jason read, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh, right? God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, left his home and became flesh and, and tabernacled, literally pitched his tent, lived among us. God immersed himself into human life. But then he lives our life and is tempted as we are. As we, uh, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, he's made like us in every way, which means that he understands our problems. He was tempted in every way. The letter of the Hebrews will say that later. He was tempted in every way that we were, but, but he didn't sin. In other words, when you are tempted, when you reach the end and you say, God, you can't understand my problems. Yes, yes, he can. He knows your issues. He knows my issues. God is not distant, untouched by the pains of the world. He took up residence and lived the life that you and I couldn't. He lived perfectly. But he also identifies us, identifies with us, right? You can see this throughout the Gospels. It happens first in, the bapti in his baptism, and then later it happens ultimately when all of our sin is laid on him, this is what the cross is all about. You know, I'm not sure if some of us in this room even, like, do we get it? Do we understand what the cross is about? Like, if you've been in church, you probably have some semblance of a notion of, like, Christ died for my sins. But then you tend to think that what that means, or you're not really sure what that means, because you still think, well, like, well, that means i got to believe in Jesus and still be pretty good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul, one of, one of the earliest Christians, puts it this way. God made him who knew no sin, that would be Jesus, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what that means is that Jesus fully identified with, with us, with those who had betrayed him. I mean, think on that. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't mess up. He didn't blow it like, like you and I did this week, this morning. But he identified himself with those who had sinned, those who had wronged him, him. And he became the sacrifice for their sins. 
He died in their place to bear their penalty. And lastly, he invites us in and draws us into the life we were made for. Again, John chapter 1 says that to all who did receive him, that is to all who've put their faith in Jesus alone, trusted in him alone for their standing before God, that he gave the right to become children of God. Like, that that's the life we were made for. That is the renewal every individual needs, and it comes through Jesus. He is the better Nehemiah who, who actually brings true renewal to us. But the last thing I want to look at is this notion of inheritance, right? Because all these principles, and often again, like I've said before, so many times what what goes off as Christian teaching can give you the 12 steps for this or the 10 reasons for this, and then you can find them, and they they wouldn't be out of place in any other self-help section in Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, Amazon, you know? They can convince us that if we just follow the right principles, check the right boxes, things are going to change. But that is not the case. Look down at verses 19 and 20. Because opposition has already begun. He just got there. He just, three days later after getting there, he he tours the area, gathers everybody together, and he starts talking to them, and immediately opposition begins to spring up. And they say, what are you doing? you trying to rebel? Which, by the way, is that's that's how they got the, the building plan stopped the first time. Because the Jews had begun rebuilding the walls, and they sent a letter to the king that Nehemiah just left, said, hey, they're rebelling. And the king said, uh-uh. And he stopped it. So they're trying it again. And Nehemiah says to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Okay? Now, background real quick. These dudes, um, Sanballat, Tobiah, uh, these guys, they're not Jewish, right? They're not part of God's people. But they are, like I said earlier, they are in political power. We're going to see more of them later. They pop up various times throughout this book. They are in political power in the region. And what Nehemiah is saying to them is, look, guys, I know you, I know you think you have power over this area. Jerusalem is God's. And we're his kids, which means it's ours by right. You have no right, and so this work will prosper because it is God's work. Now, that's nice. That's a nice thought, but let me show you some things that are going to blow your mind. So if you back up the tape, rewind the tape all the way back to the beginning in the garden, God gives a command to to Adam and Eve. He he gives them a command, but before sin had entered the world, he, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, right? Clearly, this church understands that one. Be fruitful and multiply, and then to to, um, exercise dominion over the earth. And, and we hear that word dominion and we think like exploitation and all this stuff and it sounds really bad. That's not what it means. It means to take the raw materials of the world and to, to form them into, to use the creative energy that God has given humanity to kind of make structures and things in which the world and people will flourish. It is to extend God's kingdom over the world. You see, the, the, the point of the garden at the beginning was not to have this really nice vacation spot. It was to see the garden spread. The garden wasn't supposed to stay in that little sliver of land that is still contested today. It was meant to spread over the world. And we know this because later Paul talks about the fact that that the promise to Abraham, even after sin had entered the world, see, the mission never changed. Sin enters the world, we blow it, we mess everything up. God promises to make it better. And Paul tells us that the promise to Abraham 
and his offspring. That would be the family that God said, I'm going to do this through your family. The promise to them was not for a sliver of dirt. It was for the whole world. Even even in the Lord's Prayer, right? We just prayed that earlier. and, And we say that we pray that God's kingdom will come, right? That is, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Over the entirety of the earth. That is the mission. That is, the, that, that is what we are supposed to see happen. But how? How do we see that happen? See, we can't. But Jesus has. And this is where this all kind of ties together. Because in Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells us that one of the, one of the things that the cross of Christ did, it paid for our sins, but it did something else, something very important, especially important as we're talking about change of community. Paul says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. See, Jesus didn't just come to renew us. Get little individuals into little individual salvation. I got little individual rooms up in heaven. You can go be glorified individuals. Jesus came to lay claim on the world. See, these principles are great, but they are not absolute. These principles are effective, but they are not invincible. What gives us hope as we look to the renewal in our own lives and the renewal of our city, as we stare brokenness in the face, is nothing less than the fact that Jesus has conquered evil. And his kingdom will go forward. Jesus tells tells, uh, his disciples, after Peter makes the bold proclamation of who he thinks he is, Jesus says, uh, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. And I don't know why we always think that that's some kind of like, that means that hell can never get in our walls. The gates of hell don't attack you. <laughs> the gates of hell are what keep you out. And he's saying that the, the church, that Jesus will move his church forward and it will break down hell and plunder its citizens and, and rescue them. Jesus has conquered evil and the kingdom will go forward. Will it always look the way we want it to? No, but it will go forward. And we have this certainty that what we seek to apply in part, because you and I are finite, we're, we're never going to see every, we, we are still prone to sin, everything we do is still tainted by it, and so the things that we try and seek to apply in part will one day be brought fully and in power when Christ returns to finally and fully set everything to rights. When evil is cast down and sin is done away with, and when he wipes away every tear and brings renewal that will last forever. Our confidence, even as we apply these principles, is not in the principles. Our confidence is in that hope. Our confidence is formed by the fact that this is God's world. And he is not done with it. And nothing can thwart his will. Would you pray with me? Father, give us faith to believe this. Faith to believe it in our own lives because there are some of us here this morning who, have been, who are so stuck. We are, just, we are stuck in, in habitual sins. We are stuck maybe in just unbelief. We are stuck. We are not seeing change and we need Jesus to come and conquer the rebelliousness in our own hearts. For others of us who look in our community and this week is a this is a good week for it, to look in our community and just despair. 
Give us grace to believe that Jesus, when the Father promised you the nations, that Stanton was part of that. That Waynesboro was part of that. That Fishersville was part of that. That Augusta County was part of that. Lord, give us grace and, and, and the ability to believe the gospel so much, such that we can, we can immerse ourselves in a community. Trusting you instead of our security and safety. That we can investigate, take the, the humble place. That we can not, not pretend that we know everything. That we can uh, identify, that we can own the brokenness of our city. Because we understand that we do play a part even if we don't understand it, and that there but by your grace we would go as well. And then, Lord, give us grace to invite others in to the story of redemption that you are writing, not just in individuals' lives, but in the life of the world, in the life of our city. Would you work, even through this church, small as it is, to see the kingdom of God impact the city of Stanton? We ask in Jesus' name.